Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. You'd open your Bibles as we continue our study here through Luke's Gospel, chapter 20, in the first 19 verses, and a study that I've entitled, oddly enough, given what I've been going through for the last couple of days, The Ways of the Wicked. The, the Ways of the Wicked. I want to give you a little announcement. I am not on Facebook. And so if you get a message from me on Facebook, it's not from me. It's from some wicked, undoubtedly guy who seems to be bent on trying to destroy uh, my character through sending messages to some of you ladies. And so if you get one from me, um, it's not from me. It would be from the devil. And so you can go there, click those little three tabs and report and just say, this is not Pastor Jeff Gill, this is a knucklehead who happens to be inspired by the devil. God has had his plans for the entirety of this world for an eternal period of time. And he is not short in his ability to carry out those plans. But counter to that, the devil also has his plans. And we're about to see those plans unfold towards Jesus himself. And if Jesus is attacked, you can pretty much count on being attacked while you're here on this earth. And I want to give you just a little journey through your adversary, the devil. You know, some people like to envision the devil as nearly a cartoon character who you know, is that guy with the long forked tail and, you know, pointy horns and he's red and he dresses in a unitard. Uh, that is not the devil. The devil is a real being. He is very, very intelligent. He was initially an angel of light. But the names that we find for him in Scripture are very telling. The very name Satan actually means one who slanders or who is an adversary. In other words, he's actually against everything God is for. And so in that sense, when you run up against an adversary that's against the things of God, you can be pretty well guaranteed that somewhere in the mix is the enemy himself. He's also called Apollyon, which is a Greek name for the Hebrew word Abaddon, and they both mean destroyer or destruction. Or actually, to some would say complete destruction. In other words, Satan's design is to destroy or completely destroy the things of God. That's what he's always been about. And so wherever you have the destruction of the things of God, you also have Satan, Abaddon, Apollyon at work. 
He is furthermore, according to Jesus, the father of all lies. And so when you look at what Jesus says there in John 8, 44, he gives credit to the devil for being the originator of lying itself. In other words, when something isn't true, if Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, if it's not truth and it's a lie, it comes from the enemy himself. That's why the final admonition of Scripture there at the end of the book of Revelation is that all liars will have no part in the eternal kingdom. So when you see destruction, when you see slander, when you see accusation, when you see the destruction of God's people or God himself, when you see lying, you can be pretty well assured that the enemy's behind it. Now, he's not alone, according to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, but rather, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Amen? So that person who speaks those things to you is not actually the enemy. The enemy is behind that person, stimulating those things to be said. Jesus made it clear, if Satan is the father of all lies, when someone is deceived, then they were following after the plans of the enemy and not after the plans of the Lord. But that person is actually being stimulated to join in the attack through a whole host, it says, principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, and against the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. In other words... The enemy has some help, and a lot of it. The Bible actually declares that when Satan fell, about a third of the host of heaven fell with him. And so he's got some minions that he's working with. And lastly, you can kind of see this three-pronged attack. So you have Satan himself, you have demons, you have heavenly hosts of wickedness, in other words, and then you have the people who are the ones that are kind of the unwitting ones, and that's people who don't know the Lord. People who aren't redeemed. They very often are found engaged in helping the enemy. Why? Because they don't know the Lord. And so they go with what they've got. And that would be the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so they begin to join in the fray as well. And as we see this is the definition, really, of this wickedness that's in our world. You can look at it this way. When you walk out into the world that we live in, there is a very formidable foe that exists whose leader is the devil, whose army is his demons and those that are with him, and they're aided by people who unwittingly most of the time, fall into that category of someone who does not know the Lord, so they engage in the enemy's plans. We're going to see those people in the passage that lies before us. We're going to see the ways that the wicked actually attack Jesus himself. And so would you join me? We'll pray. We'll pick up in verse 1 uh, here in Luke chapter 20. Father, we have come. 
to study your word. And we pray in Jesus' name that you would bind the works of the enemy, the wicked one, those hosts that would come and disrupt minds and invade hearts or attempt to destroy your kingdom. God, we ask that you would bind the devil and that we would be able to hear your voice loudly through the word that you have authored by your spirit through these men who wrote. And so, God, we give you this time. Speak to us as your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, And now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel. Notice what Jesus is doing. He's doing the two things that every good church should do. Teach the Bible, preach the gospel. That's what the church is supposed to be about. Teach the Bible. Jesus was the word, so he didn't have any problem doing that. Amen? Teach the Bible, preach the gospel. Teach the Bible, preach the gospel. We're about his kingdom, not this kingdom, not this earth, not even this country. As great as our nation may be in the grand scheme of things in the world, we preach Christ and him crucified. He's the answer. We don't preach some kind of blend of politics mixed together with some type of patriotism mixed together with some political affiliation. We preach Christ crucified because he can actually save men's souls eternally. All the good things that go on are good things, but they are not saving things. And so Christ himself taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him. There will always be a confrontation of the teaching of the word and the preaching of the gospel. When the church does what it's supposed to do, you can expect the world to be against it. So when people come against churches who do nothing but teach the Bible and preach the word, you know you're in the right place. Because that's what the church is supposed to be doing. That's what Jesus did. And spoke to him saying, and I love this, tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Do you have a political appointment? Do you have a degree? How, 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 how come you're doing this? Or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, and you answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? I love it when Jesus goes on the offensive. He says, okay, you want to play Q&A? Let me give you one. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, then he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men... Then all the people will stone us, for they're persuaded that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Hallelujah. This is the answer, church, when the wicked attack the authority of the good news of the gospel the teaching of the word. When, when we miss the, the prime calling that the church has by trying to be something else, 
then we join in what the enemy wants us to do. Because the enemy wants us to stop teaching the word and stop preaching the gospel. Because the enemy knows that if we teach the word and preach the gospel, people are going to get saved and their lives are going to be transformed forever. And so here comes this attack, and I want you to see it for what it is. What are these guys going to do? They're going to confront Jesus as he's teaching in the, in the temple. And so on Monday, the day after the triumphal entry, the authorities were kind of afraid to interfere because of the crowds. They're like, nah, this is not a good time. Now, today's a new day. It's Tuesday. And so they decide to accost Jesus. And the word that's translated here, confronted, is the same word if you were trying to describe how a lion or a leopard leaps on its prey. It's like they jumped on Jesus. They were trying to take him down. Notice it didn't work because it is the truth that sets people free. It's not Satan's lies, it's truth. And Jesus was speaking the truth. And so he draws attention to them instead of himself. But before he does that, he asks them a question uh, in, in response to their question because they ask him, well, who gave you authority to do these things? Can I tell you that that still happens today? Who gave you a license to preach? Well, in my case, my ordination certificate's actually signed by Pastor Chuck. So I, I have one of those. If you want to see it, it's in my office. Where did you go to school? Calvary Chapel Bible College. What degrees have you earned? I've got, a, I've got no degrees of any appreciable value because people look at them and they go, well, that's from Calvary Chapel Bible College, so it's no good. Where's your certificate of ordination? It's in my office. Who gave you permission to be here? That's the question. The Lord God of heaven. He's the one that anoints. He's the one that appoints. He's the one that calls. He's the one that equips. He does those things. And no amount of degrees or ordination of men will ever be a replacement for the calling and the appointment that's made by God. God himself calls and appoints and anoints leaders. Some of the greatest preachers of the, of the last couple hundred years all have no degrees. All were self-taught. All spent lots of time studying the word itself, and God used them. And so it's not a case against having a degree. It's just saying that just because you have a degree... Just because you went to school means absolutely nothing if there's no calling on your life. And there's no appointing by the Lord. It is God himself who does that. So notice the example that's given here. It's John the Baptist. Where did John the Baptist go to school? Nowhere. Who appointed him? No one on earth. Did he have a big church? No, they met outdoors. So their conclusion about Jesus was much the same. Look, you're not a priest. Where's your robe? You're certainly not a scribe. We haven't ever seen you write down anything. You're not a trained rabbi. You don't hang out with us. You're not in our club. You don't come to our meetings. Be very careful. Because people look at shingles on the wall and think that somehow equals an anointing, appointing, and calling. 
God looks at the heart and he equips those whom he calls. That's how the process works. Because if it were just a skill that you could learn, then everyone could go to college, get a degree in theology, and they would be automatically a pastor or a teacher. I can tell you emphatically, because I've sat down with guys that have multiple degrees, and they are no more called than those pews are to preach of themselves. It's all intellectual knowledge. Matter of fact, I've met guys that have gone to seminary that, from my perspective, as much as I'm not judging their heart, there's no outward evidence that they've actually accepted the Lord personally. They have an intellectual assent to knowledge, a certain set of things that they know. And so Jesus is drawing attention. What authority? Well, notice the reply that Jesus gives. And it's very, very, very clever. His authority and John's authority strangely came from the same place. And so he asked them a question. He says, well, well, where did John's authority come from? Because as they admit in this passage, they understood that everyone saw John as a prophet. The words that John spoke were true. In fact, they could be directly linked to the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. So whoever anointed and appointed John, the same was true of Jesus. And so he backs them into a corner. You see, here's the problem. And this is the problem I think we face in our world today. When you start to blend blend together government, politics, things other than the church, other than the word, other than the gospel, and you try and make it this malaise of political leaders and and people who've been put into specific positions because they've been around longer or they've done these certain things, when you do that, you take the work of the Spirit out of the mix. And all of a sudden, it's just about, well, how long have you known this certain group of people? And so Jesus says, look, you're either anointed or you're not anointed. You're either appointed or you're not appointed. You've either been called by the Lord or you're not called by the Lord. And the one that called John called me. That's the one who sent me. There in verse 5, there's a word that's used and it's only used here in the New Testament. It's found nowhere else. And it's the word reasoned. We see it in the Old Testament, but not in the New And it means, interestingly enough, on a Super Bowl Sunday, it means to come together in a huddle. They got together in a brain trust. Here are these guys, they gather together. It's like, man, we're really hosed here. We've got to to get down to business. Okay, let's put our heads together. All right, you're going to run a post route to the left. You're going to run one to the right. You're going deep down the middle. We're going to run pass option here. We've got to figure something out to beat Jesus didn't happen. Because what Jesus presented to them was absolute utter utter truth. And so they knew that they were going to have to go on the defensive. It's like, well, what are we going to say? Notice how they answer it. Well, if we answer this way or that way, the people are going to stone us because they think John's a prophet. 
Jesus has really backed us into a corner here. You will always find that the word of God backs everyone into a corner. You will not escape the word of God. You may disagree with it. You you may say, well, I don't like what it says. But it does not make it untrue. And so when you bump into the word, because Jesus is the word, he's actually the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, amen? So he was the word. So the word standing before them going, well, here, let me ask you a question, guys. Notice their answer. Uh, um, Well, uh, you can see them tugging on their collars. Uh, We don't know. Church, if you stick to the word, if you teach the word, if you preach the word, you will not have to defend the word. The word speaks for itself. This is what will happen to everyone. If you stick to the word, don't deviate from it, don't add to it, don't make it your word plus the word, just make it the word. If you just teach the word and preach the gospel, you will never have to answer for that truth because it is truth, it will always be true. And so Jesus says, well, guess what, guys? John and I, were sent by the same guy. That would be my father in heaven. My authority is from heaven. It's not from earth. It's not because a bunch of guys got together and said, okay, you pass. And again, there's nothing wrong with degrees. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Matter of fact, I think they're actually a good thing for most people. It is good that we use our minds. We gain as much knowledge and intellect and intelligence as we can, and then we stick to the word. Make sure that you're speaking the truth. But that confession is always what you will see when you stick to the word. When you just say, thus says the Lord, then the wickedness dries up. They have to go on the defensive. They've got to retract what they said. They have to come to terms with where they're at. You don't have to defend it. In order to explain this, basically Jesus just busted them. He said, well, I'm not going to answer you then. You can't answer this simple question. Why should I give you any more than you already have? Jesus is now going to explain this in a parable. What happens when wicked people try to assert their authority? We'll pick up in verse 9. And then he began, in light of what's just happened, here he's confronted, it's like, who sent you here? What authority do you have? Jesus says, well, it's my Father in heaven. John and I came from the same authority, and you guys just need to deal with it. And then he began to tell the people this parable. And so this is obviously an explanation of the truth that he just expounded on. And then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard. And you're going to pick this up really, really quickly. And leased it to vine dressers. That's people that take care of the vineyard. So the vine dressers don't own the vineyard. The vineyard is owned by someone else. It is given to the care or stewardship of someone else. There are the vine dressers. Very clear this is speaking of the nation Israel. 
They were blind. Jesus had just pronounced a woe as he came into Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets, you who killed the people who actually authored the Old Testament. I wanted to gather you together, but you didn't want to have anything to do with it. He leased it to the vine dressers and then went into a far country for a long time. And now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant. Now, who did he just talk about? John the Baptist. What happened to John the Baptist? He was beheaded, wasn't he? What did John say about Jesus? He says, oh, no, I'm, I'm not the Messiah. As a matter of fact, I'm not actually worthy to tie the sandals of the one who actually is. Uh, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you can see exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I want to get you guys thinking, so I'm going to tell you a story. It's not actually the story that we're trying to focus on. It's the truth in the story that we're trying to focus on. He sent another servant and beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed and a third. So you can see the prophets in view here. Throughout time, what had happened? What did Jesus say when he came into Jerusalem? You who stone the prophets... God sends his word, God sends his people, God sends someone to speak to the nation Israel, and every single time, same thing happens. The messenger is killed. And they wounded him also and cast him out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? Here you go. I will send my beloved son. Probably. They will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, Can you imagine, after what you have just studied, those hearing these words, imagine what they're... You think that they got what Jesus was saying? It's like, oh man, what did we do to Isaiah? What did we do to Ezekiel? What, did, what happened to the problem. What happened to John the Baptist? It's like we didn't believe any of them. We didn't follow any of them. Matter of fact, we actually asked for a wicked king. God actually gave us Saul. We had David. Notice what he says. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. This is what happens when you get confused about why we're here. And he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Circle that word, others. It's interesting. It's the Greek word, alos. It means others of the same kind. In other words, others like human beings are all human beings, right? Some are Jews, some are Gentiles. We're different races and creeds and tongues and nationalities, but we're all human beings, amen? So Jesus says, I'll give it to others, others of the same kind. And when they heard it, they said, 
God forbid, or certainly not. And then he looked at them and said, What then is it that is written? And he starts to quote from the Hallel, Psalm 118, the final psalm. Psalm 113 to 118, this is the songs of ascent, the Hallel, the highest praise to God. It was always read standing. This is is what you would sing going to Jerusalem. This is what was being shouted as Jesus came in to Jerusalem. They were shouting the Hallel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Can't come to Christ without being broken, amen? There's there's no such thing as salvation without repentance. Just make that clear in your mind. You don't get to keep your sin and keep Jesus too. You have to repent and be saved. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew knew that he had spoken this parable against them. That's how powerful the parable was. They knew it. They heard this and they go, he's talking about us. This graphic parable. The vine dressers, the husbandmen is another word. If you have a King James, it says husbandmen. The people who are taking care of the vineyard. Isn't it strange that the Jewish people have been entrusted with so much? Interestingly enough, the Hallel actually exalts the deliverances that had been given to Israel over their history. It begins with the exodus from Egypt. It includes the crossing of the Red Sea. It includes the personal redemption of individuals. It has all these points in it. And Jesus is saying, yeah, and they rejected the chief cornerstone. There had been all kinds of husbandmen. You had lawgivers like Moses. You had conquerors like Joshua. There had been all kinds of people tending to Israel. They had judges, Jephthah, Gideon, Samson. Prophets like we're studying on Thursday nights, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Kings, great kings like David and Hezekiah. We travel to Israel, we go to David's tomb, we go to Hezekiah's tunnel. The evidences of these great Husbandmen, the, these great vine dressers, these ones who were taking care of the vineyard properly, are still there. Incredible scribes like Ezra, guys who reformed the nation like Nehemiah. Now think of those, that list of people. And what was the people's response? Now we don't want that. No, we don't, we, don't want, we don't want that. No. Moses goes up on the mountain. What do the people do? Party. They're down making a golden calf, having a campfire, drinking their brains out. 
What happens with, jo- with Joshua? They're delivered from 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Think on this for a minute. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know how many of you have actually traveled through the deserts of our state. But we have some of the most inhospitable environment in the world in this state. Probably second only to Israel. Maybe the Golby Desert. Perhaps the Sahara. But you go out in our desert, how long do you think any of you are lasting out there in the summer? Maybe a day or two, and then you're going to be human jerky. They're going to find you shriveled up somewhere, sitting underneath a bush about this tall, trying to get some shade. God preserved his people for 40 years in one of the worst deserts on earth. And they're like, well, you know, I don't know. So they get to Kadesh Barnea, and they're looking into Canaan, the promised land. What do they do? We're not going in there. They're giants. I'm using my whining voice right now because that's what they were doing. What had they done in the wilderness? You don't like me in it. You don't like quail. You want different water. Be careful you don't join the whiners for Jesus club, Okay. Because that's what all the husbandmen of Israel had had to live with. Joshua's going, man, give me Caleb, we're going in. Moses is going, Lord, I'm going to strike the rock because these people you've given me out here, this is nuts. Isaiah, Jeremiah, think about their lives. Nehemiah goes to rebuild the city and the people are all fighting over who's going to do what part of the work. And he says, why don't you guys just work on the wall in front of your own home? Can you do that? And so the vineyard owner, after all of those centuries, you're you're talking from the lawgiver Moses to this time, 2,000 years. After all those centuries, you still don't believe. How many times do I have to teach you the same lesson? What do you want me to do? And so to that end, what would they do? By what authority? Remember verse 2? Or who is it that gave you this authority? Well, who gave Moses authority? What did God say? Hey, Moses, when you go to him, just tell him I am sent you. What what was Joshua's words? Be strong, be courageous, for the Lord thy God is with thee. You get the picture? It's all steps of faith, church. It's steps of simple faith. And so Jesus comes. The father was the owner of the vineyard. God himself had appointed Jesus. For God so loved 
the world that he gave us his only begotten son. Amen? God sent his son. Jesus is saying, look, the guy in the story, that's me. The unfaithful stewards of the vineyard, that's you. You might want to think about that. Now notice in the parable that the father, the owner, surely they'll believe my son. Okay, you don't get the first guy. You didn't believe Moses. Let's just use our list. You you didn't believe Joshua. Maybe you got down to Nehemiah. You didn't believe Nehemiah. You didn't believe Daniel. You didn't believe Jeremiah or Isaiah or anybody. You didn't believe any. But surely if I send you my own son to tell you the truth, you'll believe him. You ever thought about what it cost Jesus to come to this earth? Laying aside his glory. The glory that scripture says, as is the only begotten of the Father. You know, we kind of joke about households that only have one child, especially if that child happens to be a son, especially if that family's doing well. We usually look at that one son and go, man, that kid's, we we say things like he's going to have a silver spoon in his mouth, right? Why? Because he's going to inherit everything in the family. Now imagine that the one you're talking about is God the Father who owns the entire universe and his own son. Do you think Jesus had some glory in heaven before he came to earth? Oh, I guarantee you it did. And Jesus said, I'll put that aside and I'll come in the form of a man. And the prophet Isaiah said, a man about whom there would be nothing that you would desire him. And that man would go to the cross, which is where Jesus is now heading. Maybe they will reverence my son. You see, even demons trembled at Jesus. Pilate is going to tremble at the thought of Jesus being put to death. I find no fault in this man. What are you, what are you doing? The truth is, Jesus, as he speaks these words from the Hallel, is saying, the cornerstone's right in front of you. The cornerstone of your salvation is right in front of you. The one and only one that God has sent into this world, that through him you might be saved, is standing right in front of you. The one who's going to build the house of God is right in front of you. That made them furious. You know why? Because they were thinking the chief cornerstone was part of Herod's temple, which still stood on the temple mount. Because the cornerstone of the temple was the one stone that was precisely hewn, which determined the layout, position, the structure, everything about the building. That's why still to this day, the Temple Mount faithful actually have already hewn the stone that they believe will be used on the third temple on the Temple Mount. And usually about once or twice a year, they put it on a flatbed truck and they drive it around Jerusalem. You can Google it. Some of you are doing it on your phone right now. It's going, he's, he's messing with us. 
And so Jesus is saying, hmm, let's think about this cornerstone. Who is he? What will he do? Well, the cornerstone is going to do more than just build a building. He's going to build a kingdom. And that kingdom is the kingdom of God. It's not the kingdom of this earth. It wasn't the reformed city of Jerusalem. It wasn't the destruction of Rome. It was a kingdom wherein Christ dwells. And right now that kingdom exists in absolutely every one of you who knows the Lord. Because we're part of that kingdom. But that kingdom in its entirety will one day physically actually exist on this earth. That time is still coming. And so Jesus says in verse 17, he looked at them and then is this that is written basically true. The stone which the builders rejected. You guys are supposed to be building the kingdom. And the cornerstone's right in front of you. And you don't want him. And they're going to prove that by the end of the week because they're going to murder him. You know that the, the rulers that he's standing in front of knew this psalm by heart. He, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. That's why they say, God forbid... That's why they began to be even more furious. No, we want a new temple. We want a new government. We want new benefits. We want more money. We want more social programs. We want better farmlands. We want a bigger military. We want to rule. And Jesus is saying, no, the cornerstone that you need is the one that can save your soul. And that's why he says to them, if this stone falls on you, woe to you. But if you'll fall on this stone, if you'll just cast your cares upon him because he cares for you, you're going to be fine. Matter of fact, you're going to be better than fine. You're going to be saved. You're going to have a place in God's eternal kingdom and so, church, the ways of the wicked are still the same today. I just walked you through about 2,000 years of Jewish history. Just say from Moses to Jesus. A little bit shorter than that, but we'll just round it off. And during that time, God had done miracle after miracle after miracle, deliverance after deliverance, had spared the people time and time and time again. And it actually started way before that with Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham. And so Jesus says, look, you already know everything you need to know. You need to surrender to what you know. You need to believe and be saved. It was only going to be and will only be a couple of days and Jesus is going to be on the cross. And the whole focus from here all the way through really the rest of the book 
is the power of the gospel to save. God's desire for all men to come to the knowledge of repentance. For us to understand who Jesus actually is. You know, David had said almost a thousand years before Jesus walked on this earth in Psalm 16, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, they were going to learn that lesson. Sunday morning, the tomb was going to be empty. Jesus was going to be raised. And for all of Peter's faults, Peter not only understood this, he perhaps writes the best commentary, both in his sermons found there in the early part of the book of Acts in chapters 2 and 4, but also in his letters in 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. When Jesus speaks these words, the most well-formulated religious system on the planet Earth was Judaism. But it had become an idol. The temple itself had become an idol. Religion had become an idol. And they were believing that they'd be redeemed by a building or a military ruler. But you wouldn't be redeemed that way. But Peter goes on to say, but with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish, without spot. You see, that was the qualification for the sacrificial lamb, for the Passover lamb. It had to be a perfect lamb. Jesus was that lamb. For indeed, he was foreordained before the foundation of the world. So that spotless lamb that was slain was God's plan from the beginning of eternity. There was never another plan. But was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Not in religion. Not in a temple. Not in a religious system. Not in a type of Christianity. Not in a church. Not in a building. Not in a pastor. But in Christ and his word and the one true gospel. The ways of the wicked are still the same. You're going to be lied to. You're going to be attempted. The enemy's going to try and destroy you. He's going to slander you. He's going to slander any church that preaches the word. The gospel. But people still come to faith by believing in the cornerstone. And it's the only way you can come to faith. There is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved except at the name of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you had all the prophets. You had the conquerors. You had the scribes. You had all the information. It wasn't about you not having enough information. It was about you not believing.
Church, let's walk in faith, believing the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Amen. If you need prayer after service, maybe you're here today and you've yet to give your life to Christ. Maybe you've been in church most of your life. You've never actually made a personal profession of faith. I want to tell you today, there's a difference between being in church and being a child of God. We have a prayer team in our prayer room. We'd love to pray with you, share the basic gospel with you, which has already been shared with you today. But if you just simply go to our prayer room after church, after the service, and say, what do I need to know? What do I need to do to receive Christ? It's simple. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. For the rest of us, that's our mission. is to tell people the truth and tell them about Jesus. Father, we thank you. But our mission's actually simple. It's not complex. Lord, you handed over the vineyard to the Gentiles, just as the Apostle Paul said there in Romans 1. But the gospel came to the Jew first. And Lord, we, we now have the privilege of, of bearing the gospel as the Gentile world, but one day going to see to it that all Israel is saved. And so we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for those today that maybe have come and they're uncertain of their future. Should they pass from life into death or looking at eternity? Maybe they're watching online. God, it's as simple as believing on you through your son, Jesus. If we believe in you, Jesus, we shall be saved. And so, Lord, we believe. Help us keep the gospel simple. Teach the entirety of your word cover to cover and never lose hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.